0: say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them." When he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And the second reading is taken from John's Gospel, chapter ten, and beginning to read at verse nine. Jesus said, I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God.
2: Okay. Well, it, seem- <laughs> it seems to have turned itself off twice of its own accord. Um, so, well, let's see how we get on. You just need to shout out we can't hear you if at any point it breaks. Yes. Okay. So, what do you, what do you think of this? Yeah, it's good, isn't it? No more broken music stands for me to put my notes on. No more ambo to hide behind so now you can see if my knees are knocking. All is revealed. And uh, actually, that would serve as a good title for this passage that we're looking at today. Because I think it is the turning point in Mark's gospel. Up to this point, the whole focus has been on Jesus' identity. Who is he? All of the miracles, all of his teaching, his interaction with the Pharisees, the healings, and, uh, and so on. They've been pointing to this question Who is this man? who can do incredible things. And yet in this passage, suddenly all is revealed. We find out who he is, and we'll come on to that in a moment. We find out what he's come to do, and the shock that that was to those who heard it. And we find out what we need to do if we're to follow him. What is a Christian is definitely a good summary of what we're looking at today. And therefore, it's a vitally important thing. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is going to tell you what being a Christian looks like. And if you think you are a Christian, this is going to check that actually you've signed up for what you think you've signed up for. Okay? So that's where we're heading. I'm going to do three things through the sermon. And uh, I'm going to encourage us from what the disciples get right in this passage. I'm going to warn us from what Peter gets wrong in particular. And third, I'm going to challenge us to respond to Jesus' call. And underlying all of this is basically an awareness or acknowledgement that actually we need to know two things if we're going to commit our life to Jesus. We need to know what the costs are so we're not surprised, so we're willing to have them. And we need to know what the rewards are. It's hinted out in the Mark passage. It's made explicit in the John passage. And then put those together, we've got the whole picture. And then we can make our decision. Are we going to live the life Jesus called us to? So I want to pray. I want to pray that we would be challenged, and I'm fairly confident we will be. The bar is high here. The stakes are high too. But I want to pray that the Spirit gives us the desire and the courage to go for it and live what Jesus tells us the Christian life is all about. So let's pray. Father, would you meet with us this morning? Father, would you bring your word alive? As Tim prayed, Lord, would your spirit fill us and allow us to hear exactly what you're saying to us as individuals? Okay, so let's get underway, starting with Peter's confession of Christ. It comes in verse 29, if you've got a Bible in front of you. And up to now, as I've said, almost everything in the Gospel has been pointing to the question of Jesus' identity. The authority of his teaching, the healings, miracles, exorcisms, etc., and the disputes with the Pharisees. And here in this passage, Jesus actually explicitly asks that question, the killer question as Jesus, as sorry, not Jesus, uh, Tim, next best thing... <laughs> put it, the killer question, who do you say I am? And he asked the disciples, first of all, about other people. It's the first opinion poll in the Bible, I've realised, which I quite like, because I used to be an opinion pollster. And uh, so he asked the disciples, who it everyone else say I am? The answers come, John the Baptist, Elijah, and uh, some other Old Testament prophets. I'm not sure about the methodology of the opinion poll, but there we go, that's it. But then Jesus, I'm sure, would ask the question he's more interested in, which is the one of his disciples, these people who've been with him for two years almost, who do you say I am? And it's Peter so often who's the one that steps forward. He speaks and he says, you are the Messiah, the one the prophets had predicted, the man the whole Jewish nation had been waiting for. And Peter's the first one to get it. Jesus is the Christ, the one who, according to Isaiah 49, wouldn't just bring Israel back to God, but would be a light to the Gentiles by which the whole world, to the ends of the earth, would experience salvation as well. This is that man, the anointed one, the promised one. And Peter is the one who's grasped it. He's solved the puzzle. What a moment! So what happens next? Does Jesus get them all to sit down, reflect on the moment, just absorb it, let it sink in, celebrate it, enjoy the moment? Did he give Peter a pat on the back and say, well done, Peter, you've got it? No. Instead, he ruins the moment by immediately teaching them that he must suffer many things, be rejected by the religious establishment, and then be killed. He did add, to be fair, that he'd rise again after three days, but somehow I think they, they missed that bit. And the disciples are devastated, to put it mildly. Talk about bursting the balloon. It was the spiritual equivalent of a man asking his girlfriend to marry him, her saying yes, and then him immediately saying, oh, and by the way, I've got 10 months to live. From a soaring emotional high to a rock-bottom Emotional wow. I was thinking for a title of this transition in this passage. It's from wow to wow. No way, Jose says Peter. Okay, I'm paraphrasing there. And he dies straight in, trying to put the brakes on, which on one level is understandable. But he doesn't want Jesus to die. He doesn't want this to end. But on another level, he's rebuking the very person he's just declared to be the Messiah. And that's never really a good plan. And he's promptly put in his place, isn't he? Jesus rebukes him back and in those shocking and memorable words says, get behind me, Satan. You do not not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Get behind me, Satan. And then as if that wasn't bad enough, he adds, oh, and by the way, you'll need to lose your own lives too. We'll get on to that later. But first, let's note the encouragement. I've given you the bad news there, if you like. But actually, the bigger picture is this. There is a Messiah. We now know who he is. God does have a plan. He offers us life and life to the full, as that other passage in John told us. And the disciples knew that as well from their own experience. Almost two years on an amazing adventure, for almost two years, traveling and ministering with Jesus. They loved it. And without doubt, there was nothing they'd rather be doing. Certainly not fishing, certainly not tax collecting. Just imagine how exciting, how amazing it must have been to see the crowds, the miracles, the wonder of his teaching, to have a cause to believe in, a purpose to live for, and such anticipation every day, about what Jesus would do next. And just imagine what an enormous privilege and honour it must have been to be among those 12 people that Jesus had chosen as his closest friends. Was this life in all its fullness? You bet it was. They didn't want it to end. That's why Peter was so upset. He loved Jesus. They all did. And yet here's the thing. The promise of life to the full wasn't just for them. In that passage in John, the context is Jesus has gathered everyone around, not just the disciples. And he said, I am the gate. Come through me, you can find pasture. I am the good shepherd. He warns about the thief. And he says, come to me. And you and all future people who would follow me, and that includes us, can have life eternity and in this world life in all its fullness the life we've always wanted it's the language of abundance echoing Isaiah 55 actually it was set in the future messianic age where God's appeal to the people is this why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy listen listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. so my question to us all This morning, right now, is this. Do you believe it? Do you believe that this is what's on offer? What's more likely? That God's got it wrong, that actually the Christian life isn't that great? Or that we're simply failing to do the things that enable us to access and experience that abundance, that life to the full, day by day, week by week? I want to suggest it's the latter. For if you've ever had even the slightest taste of life in all its fullness, maybe just for a moment, well then you know, don't you, that there's more to be had. And the reason we don't have it all the time is because we're not using those tools, we're not using those spiritual disciplines, we're not setting in place the time the boundaries around those moments where we really seek to draw on that grace and experience that life in all its fullness. Seek the filling of the Spirit. Seek to put ourselves in the situations and places where we come alive. And if we chose to do those things, well, maybe we could see what's on that screen right now is actually what our life is like. Don't get me wrong. We face difficult times. We face times of dryness. We face times when we're really having to wrestle with God and and, and really hunger for what he has for us. But there is so much that we can do that allows us to access the grace of God. We don't need to do it to earn his favor, but it's part of the ways in which we draw on whatever feeds us and whatever fires us, gives us passion and touches our heart. So let's just think about what those things might be for a moment. It'll be different things to different people because, and this is really crucial, we're all wired differently. So some Christians particularly experience closeness to God through worship music, whether it's modern or traditional. If that's you, how do you use that music during the week? So that what happens on Sunday as you worship God also happens at home. Maybe you're an activist. Maybe you're someone who just wants to get out there, be helping people. And when you do that, it brings you alive. It gives you joy. So what could you be doing? Or just locally, it could be street angels. It could be healing on the streets. It could be working with the homeless at the all-night cafe. It could be bees. It could be working with the elderly. Or maybe you're a contemplative type. So for you, it might be meditating on scripture. Maybe you're an outdoor type. What you need to do is get out in the countryside, experience nature, God's creation, and it fires you. Maybe you need to go on a mission trip. Maybe you need to get a mentor. Maybe you need a spiritual director. Maybe you need to join a life group. Maybe you need to read a Christian book and meet with someone to talk about it. Maybe you need to go on a retreat. Maybe you just need to spend an afternoon with God. There are so many things we can do. The question is, are you pursuing life in all its fullness sufficiently that whatever works for you is happening? It's a question I ask myself, and it's a question I think we all need to ask. So my first point is, be encouraged. It really is a life worth living. We can have life in all its fullness, well, let's do the things that enable us to enjoy it, to receive it, and to use it to inspire us to share it with others. So, that's the encouragement. My second point now is this. It's a warning. Satan wants us to miss out. And that's implied in the Mark passage in Jesus' rebuking of Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan. Now, what is he saying there? Is he saying that Peter is Satan? Of course he's not. But what he is saying is that Satan is violently opposed to anything that connects us with God. Now, of course, Satan didn't want the cross and the resurrection to happen. It changed everything. He knew that would happen. He knew it signalled if Jesus went to the cross that the war had been won, that the barrier between us and God had been removed, that he'd been defeated, and that life to the full was now possible. That's why Satan didn't want Jesus to die. That's why Peter was advancing the purposes of Satan at that moment, albeit unknowingly. And yet Jesus knew. He knew what he had to do. And so Satan is reduced, now that Jesus has died and risen again, to just tackling us as individuals, seeking to keep us from experiencing that life in all its fullness. But he knows that the eternal big picture is fixed. He will ultimately be destroyed and all God's people will be with him in heaven. So how then does Satan tackle or target us now? We need to be wise to this. I just want to say a little bit about that. And the John passage gave us a clue because it said the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and life in all its fullness. So the devil does this, first of all, by blinding the minds of unbelievers, denying that they have any need for the cross. 2 Corinthians 4 talks about that. And it's a reality, I think, when we talk to um, you know people within the wider population, there will be some who simply don't recognize their need for a savior. They don't think that there's anything that they need saving from. And the devil's quite happy with that. Then there's those who realize we need a saviour. Maybe those of us who've chosen to trust in Jesus. What does he do to tackle us? Well, I think he, he tries distraction. So we lose our appreciation of what we've been given or our dedication to the things of God and the things that give us life. How does he do that? He'll distract us with other things that we might get excited about and spend our time thinking about, whether it's Um, our houses or our hobbies or our work or our family or our football team or whatever it might be. So he tries to distract us away from seeking to find our fulfillment in Christ. He also tries to put things in our life that actually take up all our time so we don't have any time left uh, for God and for the things that he might want to do in us or do through us. It's well worth just thinking about what is the most important thing in your life, putting some blocks of time in your diary and saying, that's ring-fenced for God, and then let the other things fit around that. We need to prioritise. So the devil tries distraction. What else does he try? He tries temptation, of course. When our guard is down, he tempts us to live a little selfishly, not looking to the interests or looking to minister to others. He might might tempt us to live self-destructively, And he tries persecution, tackling our our fear of not fitting in. That is a reality today, even though it's not anywhere near as great as it might be in some other parts of the world. He targets our thought life, speaking lies that undermine our confidence in who we are in God, in how he's made us. He might undermine our clarity about what really matters in life and what truly satisfies us. He might undermine our identity as dearly loved children of God. He might be saying to us, you're not worthy to receive God's forgiveness and blessing. He might be saying to us, you're guilty. You're still a failure. All of these are ways in which Satan is trying to pull us away from the freedom that God's promised us and for the life in all its fullness that he's promised with us. We need to wake up to it. We need to pray for protection from it. We need to put on the spiritual armour and we need to do what Jesus tells us to, in this chapter in Mark to do in response. So what is Jesus's command then in the face of these multifaceted attacks? It's that the cross can set you free. For it tells us that we're loved. It tells us that we're forgiven. And it tells us that Satan has no hold on us. His death on the cross achieved all that. It means we can stand firm with our spiritual armour on, and fight back. But in telling us to carry our own cross and give up everything for him, what Jesus is also telling us is that we're in a battle, that it does take effort, hard work, and sacrifice to allow God to work in us and for God to use us to advance his kingdom. And ultimately, the key thing that we need to know is that he needs to be in charge What use is a free spirit in a theatre of war? I'm sure Tim would say, none whatsoever. Because the moment we try and hold on to our independence, or even some of it, we're in trouble. Satan can get at us. He'll question God's word. Did God really say, you mustn't do that, or you need to do this? Just as he did in the Garden of Eden. And he'll tempt us to disobey that word. Wouldn't you really prefer that? Just as he did with Israel in the wilderness, or Jesus in the wilderness. The same, Satan works the same way now as he did then. For he knows that the moment we stop listening to God's voice or stop responding to God's voice, we're neutralized. We're no danger to him anymore. We're off the front line, having no impact, weakening the team. Just as in a military battle, if the soldiers no longer obey their orders, they're in trouble. Because in warfare... Spiritual, military, obedience is absolutely key. So what does Jesus mean then when he talks about denying ourselves and losing our life for him? It's a very topical topic for Lent, isn't it? Where we choose to deny ourselves. But Jesus is saying that denying ourselves is a lifestyle. It's a way of life. It's about acknowledging that the battle is real, that it can often be hard. For some Christians in some places, incredibly so as of course it was for Peter and some of those early disciples. But it's primarily about making crystal clear who calls the shots. We gain eternal life, we receive abundant life, but we do so by accepting that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him. And that therefore actually dying to self and dying to everything that holds us back needs to be a daily discipline. We're to go on dying to all the stuff that the devil throws at us. We're to go on dying at all the stuff that our secular culture around us throws at us with all its subtle recasting of what truly satisfies us, whether it's the ideal home, the ideal lifestyle, the ideal job, the ideal car, the ideal partner or the ideal child or the ideal comfortable, secure situation, the ideal pension, the ideal retired life. Whatever it is, Jesus calls us to die to that stuff, enjoy whatever he gives us, but to recognize that nothing is a must-have apart from him and what he seeks to do in our lives. We go on dying to everything else and rising to new life in him. And as a church, I want you to know that there's great stuff happening. I looked at the attendance figures last year and they were significantly, or For 2015, it was significantly higher last year. We've had a really good opening two months this year. I want you to know that we've got a really big group at Alpha, including lots of young people, and that's going well. I want you to know we had a cross-questionnaire which 130-odd people filled in. Really positive, the things people were saying. I think we're moving in the right direction. I think God is working here. I think there are signs of growth. But what about you as an individual, Are you winning your individual battle? Or do you need to die to something? A distraction, a temptation? Or do you need to respond to anything? A revelation or an opportunity that God has laid on your path? Do you need to be willing to pick up your cross again? To see that real kingdom impact, that real spiritual fruit. There's very little fruit that comes without hard work but it's hard work that the Holy Spirit can do for us as long as we're willing to play our part in getting stuck in, putting ourselves out there and taking whatever opportunities he gives us. So this is the calling then, is to begin that adventure again, to get back on the front line, to leave a legacy, to respond to Jesus' challenge. And I want to provide an opportunity for us to do exactly that now. So what I want us to do is is just think about some of the things we might want to die to again this morning. Maybe it's to living independently from God. Maybe we want to once more, for the first time, give our life to him. Maybe we want to die to the things that distract us so we lose our appreciation of what we've been given. So that we don't lose our dedication to the things that grow our faith. Maybe we want to die to the lie that anything other than God can satisfy. Maybe we want to die to the lies that Satan has told us about ourselves. Maybe we want to die to anxiety about the things we can't control and once again put everything in God's hands. Or maybe we want to die to a fear of sacrifice, a fear of risk, a fear of people criticising our faith, a fear of stepping out into the unknown. Yet, knowing that God is with us. What do you want to die to? What do you need to die to? What do you need to be liberated from today? So, this is how we can respond. You'll see behind me there's a cross, there's plenty of room on there. And in the middle of the church there, you'll see there's a little table. We've got some post it notes, we've got some pens. And this is how we're going to respond. If there's anything that you want to say to God, I want to die to, or I want to receive from you, write something on the sticky side of a post-it note, or leave it blank if you prefer, and then come up to the cross, and just place it there. If you've written on the sticky side, it won't be visible to anyone else, and we'll throw them all away straight after the service. But this is a key opportunity. I want you to have to walk up I want there to be a cost of doing this because I want you to know that it's important. I want you to know that lives are turned around, paths are reset, ministries are reawoken, joy can be re-received. Reconciliation can result. Vision can come, calling can come, confidence can come. When we come back to the cross and say, I lay it all down again. Lord Jesus, would you give me whatever you want me to have? Would you call me to whatever you want to call me to? So we're going to listen to a song that's based on exactly that passage we've been looking at today. And I'm going to start. Feel free to follow.
3: just uh, have a moment before we're going to sing a song in response uh, to what Tom has said to us and then we're going to go into a time of confession and intercessions which I will lead through Jesus purpose is to give us life in all its fullness nothing is a must-have apart from him so I don't know what you've written on your post-its but we're going to stand and sing together everything we have all I have I surrender to Jesus let's stand and sing together
1: Jesus I surrender. Take me, Jesus, take me now, I surrender all, I surrender all. all to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Jesus, I surrender. Make me Savior, holy Thine. Let me feel the Holy Spirit, truly know that Thou art my
3: sit down recognising what we've just sung and what we've heard and recognising that it is hard we're just going to have a time of confession and open ourselves up to acknowledging where things have gone wrong over the last week or so maybe even longer can we just put the words of the first part of it up so I'm going to uh, say the words in white and then if you respond with the words in yellow so we confess to you Lord our selfishness our lack of love fill us we pray Father with your spirit Lord have mercy mercy. we confess to you our fear and failure in sharing our faith fill us Father with your spirit Christ, have mercy. We confess to you our stubbornness and our lack of trust. Fill us, Father, with your Spirit. Lord, have mercy. some words of forgiveness on the screen you might like to just read them Talks of God loving the world so much that he sent Jesus to be our saviour asks that he would take away our sins and make us new, make us holy in order to serve him God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And we who are crippled by sin, deformed by selfishness, can, if we are prepared to listen, hear the voice that says, Rise up, your sins are forgiven. Amen.